Hey there, Duke fans, and welcome to episode number 36 of the DBR podcast. I am your host this week, Jason Evans. I am joined, as always, by Sam Klein and Donald Wine. Sam, say hello from Denver. Hey, everybody. How you doing? And Donald, uh, where are you today? Back in D.C.? I have just returned to D.C. I have been on the road for two weeks, eight cities and seven different countries and territories, but I am back from vacation, and, and I miss D.C. a lot, so I'm, I'm glad I'm home. Hey, just so folks know, we're recording this on um, Sunday evening uh, after Duke has played Utah State earlier today. Um, and and guys, let me let me start. You know, this is our first podcast since the basketball regular season started. Not bad, not bad. Um, Duke is off to a six and one start um, thus far, doing pretty nicely. We had a little setback there against Kentucky, but have looked really good since then. Um, rather than hashing each and every game or focusing too much on Utah State, which doesn't really seem to make sense given all the things that have been going on, um, Sam, let me start with you. Just general thoughts. What have you seen thus far from the Blue Devils? I think that there's a clear distinction between the steadiness of the veterans on this team, the Marshall Plumleys, uh, Mill Jefferson, Matt Jones, and, and Grayson Allen, and then the freshmen on this team who have been inconsistent, I think, to this point. Uh, you, you can watch this team, and if and if you ask someone, which of these guys do you think are the new guys and which are the old guys, I think it's pretty clear who they are, you know, if you if you can watch all the games. Um, Jefferson and, and Jones in particular, I think, have been very good on the defensive side of the ball. And uh, I think that we're getting a lot more production from those older guys than we expected to. You know, knowing that guys like Jefferson and Jones and Plum are are meant to be role players, uh, they've played a much bigger part so far, I think, than than most people expected. And so, with that, I think that the ceiling for this team is is nowhere in sight yet because because the guys who are presumed to be less talented are the ones who are leading the team, other than Grayson Allen. I mean, Grayson Allen has been the most productive player so far, and he and and he was presumed to be to be on his way to being that this year. So in that regard, um, you know, that that's living up to expectations. And he's, I think at this point, he's actually exceeding expectations. But from the perspective that uh, Derek Thornton and Brandon Ingram and Luke Kennard have all, and Chase Jeter in their own ways have all, um, you know, they've they've shown flashes. Like today, Kennard is, was shooting the ball really well. He was uh, shooting from all over the court. But I think that there's a lot of room for improvement for this team. And it's exciting that the veterans are playing well and that they're, that you know, we can presume that they're going to bring the freshman on. So that's kind of my general take on the team. Donald, do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. And and I think you know, to simplify a little bit more, what I've seen uh, in the first uh, seven or so games is that for the freshmen, the game has not slowed down completely for them yet, and and that's okay. That's uh, it's not supposed to, but um, I, I feel like that has slowed down for them at times. And at times, it seems like they're kind of overwhelmed by the college game. Uh, meanwhile, for uh, our veterans, you know, especially Grace Nall, it seems like he is playing this game in super slow-mo uh, compared to the freshman because he ha- has jumped out of the gates really, really quick. And, and with the exception of the Kentucky game where a lot of team, a lot of players didn't have a, a good game, uh, he's been playing really, really well. And I'm really it, it, hey, it it feels like Grace Nallen has like a cheat code or something like that. That yeah, we're playing, he, he, you know, NCAA two two K fifteen, and he has a cheat code because he's getting around guys like I mean, I can't recall a Duke player. It was funny. I said to a friend of mine, Grace Nallen has the best first step, and then I corrected myself and I said, you know what? He's got the best second or third step. It's not that his first step gets him past you, but his second and third step, no one can stay with him. It's amazing. He had a Euro step today against Utah State that looked like Manu Ginobili. 
And I didn't, yeah. I didn't think we were able to see that from him. Yeah. Hey, Don Donald, I'm going to let you get back to what you were saying in a second, but I do want to point out one thing about Grayson Allen. Um, I don't think we can expect him to continue this. The guy's shooting above 50% from the field. He's shooting 50% from three. He's hitting 91% of his free throws. Unless Grayson Allen has suddenly become J.J. Redick with, with a drive to the basket game unlike J.J. ever had, I don't think we can expect him to continue to do this. So that does concern me a little bit, but boy, it's been fun to watch so far. All right, Donald, keep on going. I actually was just going to mention that, you know, as it seems like as Grayson goes, so does the team. You know, he has, you know, I, I think he willed this team to uh, the two victories over Georgetown and um, uh, VCU Virginia Commonwealth yeah. um, in the in the 2K Classic. I think he has been uh, doing everything that he needs to do. And at times he is carrying the team with him. And, and it's, it's great to see. But again. What's going to happen when he has that off night like he did against Kentucky? That means other people have to step up. So far on the defensive end, I think our veterans, you know, our, our three captains have been dynamite on the defensive end. And I think even, you know, I, in my opinion, I think we've seen a lot of offensive uh, prowess from them as well. And, and smart offensive uh, game, especially from Matt Jones and Emil Jefferson. So uh, it's been good to see that they have really asserted themselves defensively and really helped this team uh, through some tough times, uh, as you know, as we uh, as we've had early in the season. But um, going forward, you know, we do have some freshmen that probably will start to emerge in the game. Hopefully we'll slow down for them a little bit more and we'll get more offensive production from them. I think I think on Grayson Allen, the comp, I, I'm not sure if it was somebody on the board or if it was me that came up with it. But I know that I've been thinking it for a while that uh, Grayson Allen reminds me a lot of Gerald Henderson from when he was a, a junior and, and I guess a, a sophomore as well at Duke, where, you know, he's a really athletic wing, but he's not the tallest guy, but he can, he can create with the ball. I think the problem with the teams that Henderson was on was that the other guys in the team were like, oh man, Henderson is so athletic and is so, uh, gets to the basket so easily that we can just stand around and watch him. And I don't think that this team has that problem quite so much with Grayson that, that the like 08 and 09 teams had with Henderson. I think that, um, you know, Allen isn't, I, I don't think at the beginning of the season, Allen was, was necessarily like definitely going to be the best offensive player on the team. I think that a lot of people thought that that was going to be Brandon Ingram. And, you know, we're still waiting to, to see that. Um, but, but if we're talking about, you know, what, you know, how Grayson Allen profiles, I think looking like Gerald Henderson is a good thing, especially because to this point, his jump shot looks a lot better than his outside jump shot looks a lot better than Gerald Henderson's ever did at Duke. And, you know, that's, that's a huge it's going to be a huge part of his game. Uh, if he's able to shoot threes as well as he has so far, then it's going to be very hard for teams to contain him unless they have a player like Isaiah Briscoe on, on Kentucky. Hey, hey guys, I want to play a little game here. Um, seeing as we're summing up, you know, the first seven games of the season so far, um, surprising thing, disappointing thing, smart thing. I want each one of you to give me first, just really quickly, the one most surprising thing you've seen from Duke the first couple weeks, then we'll do the most disappointing thing you've seen the first couple weeks, and then we're going to each have one really smart observation because I know we are so good at this. We are so smart when it comes to basketball, either that or I'm completely deluding myself. But let's start with a surprising thing. Donald, give me give me your one surprise, your one positive thing you've taken from the first couple weeks that you really didn't expect to see. Uh, I, I, I think the biggest surprise we've talked about, how explosive Grayson has been and, you know, I thought he was going to make a leap, but he's made an uber leap so far this year. And I think uh, that has been very surprising. And, you know, even 
you know, hearing about it when I'm on the road and, and all these different nice places that I've been to the last couple of weeks, the one name that has been popping up on my, you know, on my feed has been Grayson Allen. And I, I think that is great to see. It's my biggest surprise so far. Uh, hard to argue with that. Sam, what about you? I think that my uh, biggest surprise is that if, if you were to, I, I think I mentioned earlier, if you were to watch this season without knowing the expectations, um, you would, you would think, you know, if you knew the expectations, you think Brandon Ingram's going to be going to be very talented with the ball. Derek Thornton's going to be a good distributor. Um, I think that from watching the season game to game, there's like one freshman that plays really well, and the rest of them look like freshmen. And I think the surprising thing is is how consistent that observation has been. That one game is <laughs> one game is Brandon Ingram's game, and one game is Luke Kennard's game, and one game is Derek Thornton's game, one game is Chase Jeter's game, and that they rotate that sort of roll around, I'm excited for the game where a lot of them are, are into the game and where instead of having, you know, the veterans and then maybe one or two freshmen, the veterans and three or four of the freshmen looking good. Um, I, I'm surprised that it's spread around so much. I think that in the first, what, however many games we played, seven games, um, we've seen so many different outcomes from the different guys in this team. It doesn't feel like people have their roles defined yet. There's been a lot of changing of minutes. We've seen a few different starting lineups. We've seen Ingram sit, we've seen Allen sit, we've seen Thornton sit. Um, so I'm, I'm surprised that it hasn't come together yet. Um, not that I expected the team to have you know, their whole identity ready to go at the end of November, but just that, that there's, it, there appears to be a lot of tinkering going on. And, and I, I think it's a, it's a challenge for this team. Um, but, but it's, it, it'll come together eventually. It's just interesting how, diverse i think the outcomes have been so far that that is another excellent excellent observation and surprise uh, you know one thing i would add to that is i actually think it's kind of a good thing um i don't want us peaking it duke has peaked in november and december many times in the past and i don't think there's much danger of that this time and i think that's a good thing we've we've got already some very nice quality wins under our belt the team looks to be uh, you know certainly legitimate as a top top 10 maybe top five team um, you know, we'll learn more as we go forward, but, um, for, for, for us to be like, yeah, it's clear that this team ha best days are ahead of it. That's a really good thing. So my biggest surprise from the first couple of weeks is how much coach K has played zone, um, yeah. and how effective the one, three, one, wow, that one, three, one, either with Emil Jefferson or Brandon Ingram up top, both guys with, with long arms. I mean, Brandon Ingram has freakish long arms. Brandon Ingram looks like he's an alien from another planet, but Emil Jefferson also has long arms and, arms and great instincts. The effectiveness of the one three one and how quickly Coach K has gone to it really surprised me this season. We saw last year that he would play some zone, but um, boy, it, it's it's apparent that they were working on zone in the preseason, um, and uh, I, I'm, I'm thrilled to see that the uh, the the old guy has learned some new tricks. Coach K is, uh, you know, cracking out that one three one. I think that's going to be effective for us all season long. So that's and, been my big surprise. Well, and 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 on that on the defense, I think that one of the reasons that it works so well, as you mentioned, is is Ingram and and Jefferson, and then also Matt Jones playing in the bottom of that one three one has been very. Effective He's been excellent. And Un unsung think, unsung hero and excellent I, back there. Yeah, and I think that I think that the smart thing about Coach K here is that he designed that defense knowing you know, who his personnel is and what they're capable of doing. We've talked in the past about what, how integral Lance Thomas was to the defense in his senior season in 2010, where they would like play box in one, um, or they would play that, uh, that trapping zone with him at the top. Uh, and, and we, 
we mention a lot about how Emil Jefferson reminds us of Lance Thomas. They have similar body types. Uh, they they move similarly. They're they got long arms. They're able to uh, disrupt smaller guards. And and Coach K we're seeing is able to use that length again in an effective way and not burying Jefferson in the post where he's a good post defender, but he's he's really fantastic out on the perimeter uh, where he can disrupt those guards who aren't used to seeing that kind of length against them. And he's savvy enough to to stay in front of them. So I'm. Um, I, I, I agree with you. The one three one defense has been really neat. And it's as you say, it's a testament to how much Kay is able to adopt even in his what thirty-sixth season as the Duke coach. <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, so here we are shocked that Coach K is smarter than the rest of us at basketball. Who'd have thunk it? Um, all right. So, guys, let's move on from surprising thing. Um, I, you know, I hate to do it, but sometimes you have to. Disappointing thing. What's the one disappointing thing you've seen from the first couple weeks of games? Um, Sam, get me started on this one. Well, I think the most obvious one is Sean Obey. Um, he, you know, we talked in the offseason, we talked last year, how, how many times we talk about how every time Duke takes a transfer, they're an impact player. You know, the most recent transfers have been Rodney Hood, who I think was the second leading scorer on his team behind Jabari Parker and uh, Seth Curry. You know, both of these guys are now in the NBA. We figured, oh, we're getting this big guy, uh, you know, from a from a, a lower tier team, but who had a ton of rebounds his freshman year. He's a, he's a big body. I think we all figured that he was going to grab a bunch of rebounds. You know, he's going to average eight or 10 rebounds a game and he's going to score a bunch of garbage points around the basket. And we basically haven't seen him play yet. And you know, there was a lot of talk over the summer about how he wasn't ready. I think we, we saw those open practices. There was the concern about how he was kind of benched and, and, and sent off to the side in those practices. And it was like, what's going on? Like, what's wrong with Sean Obi? I think it's still a surprise. I think it's going to remain a surprise, uh, you know, until however many years that, you know, if he never develops into a, a useful rotation player for Duke. I think at some point down the road, we're going to, we're going to hear the story about what happened to him because the, the coaching staff isn't going to go out and, and grab a transfer just because they're going to grab a guy who they, they think is useful and they, and they want to have around. And to this point, it's not clear what Sean Obi's role on this team is. And if he's going to have one, um, you know, that, Plumlee and Jefferson are going to graduate this year, but next year Harry Giles is going to come in. So I don't know, I don't know where where Obi fits in the program right now, and I think that that's by far the most disappointing thing so far. Uh, Donald, maybe you want to highlight one of the more subtle ones. Yeah, I think you know, I, I hate to call it disappointment, but uh, I think you know, mine so far is Ingram being more of a freshman than we thought he would be. Um, you know, at times it seems like he, I mean, he really hasn't had a complete game yet, and and. That's okay because he is a freshman, uh, but it is something that before the season we, you know, we talked about how he would probably be among the team leaders uh, in points and in a lot of these other categories. You know, we did our last uh, uh, our last podcast. We did the predictions on a lot of these superlatives, and his name came up pretty often. So uh, for him to show that he is a freshman so far, uh, while is okay in the grand scheme of things, is is slightly disappointing because. You know, I think he's a great player, and, and hopefully that we can, once we get him in the in well into the fold, then I think we're going to be a much better team than we are. Um, and and that's to say that we're we're doing pretty well so far. So guys, you guys, you ruined it for me. I I, I can't do disappointments because you all stole the ones that I'd written down several of them, and <laughs> and had you know the game's moving a little too fast for Ingram, and he's not very effective on the offensive end, and um 
and and our bench seems really thin. It's it's like we don't even have a ninth player. So you stole two of mine. So I'm going to have to go to the. Uh, oh, and by the way, one of the other ones I had because uh, I wrote this up b- before we played Utah State today. I said uh, one of my disappointments was that Kennard's long range shooting wasn't that good, and lo and behold, he he comes out and puts up 22 points today and looks great. Yeah. So uh, on, on Kennard, <laughs> I I was talking to some friends about that earlier. Uh, I think it was last week. One of my friends was like. What what's the deal with Kennard? I thought he was supposed to be a shooter, and he's only like I think at the time he was like two for seventeen from three at whatever time we were talking. Yeah, at, like so far in the season, and I said I think you need to learn more about sample sizes um, because seventeen three point shots spread across like five or six games is not going to tell you anything about a player. And right. right, true to form, you know, I think we all saw, I think we all saw it today coming eventually. I don't know if we saw it coming today, but we saw it coming eventually. I mean, the kid is that what second leading scorer in Ohio State basketball history high school basketball history, um, he's going to score points. So, and he started doing it today. I was surprised at, at how versatile he was scoring the ball. I thought that, um, you know, he was going to get put into a role where Kay would just tell him, you know, keep shooting threes. You're going to get your three-point shot, and, and that's going to be fine. You know, you're, you're not the first guy off the bench probably on this team. Um, so just shoot threes. But, but Kennard was like, he was making moves in the lane. He was taking mid-range shots. I, I was impressed with how quickly he came along. And it, and it goes to what I was saying earlier about how, you know, game to game, you're not clear which of the freshmen is going to step up and be really good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I'm going to fall back, um, seeing as Kennard shot himself out of my disappointment list. Uh, I'm going to fall back on on the only other thing that I identified um, by me so far, which was I'm a little disappointed um, in Chase Jeter's development. I really, uh, this kid was very, very highly ranked and highly regarded coming in. Um, he's long, he's rangy, he's bouncy, a good athlete. He's kind of thin, but I mean, uh, look, he, he looks like Arnold Schwarzenegger standing next to Brandon Ingram, so he's not that thin. Um, I, I sort of thought Chase Jeter would be carving out a larger role for himself. Um, now, part of that may be that, to be honest, I think Marshall Plumley's ba- playing better than than I think almost any one of us could have expected. Um, and uh, and as a result, there may not be as much room for Jeter because Jeter's clearly playing the same position as um, uh, as Marshall. And, and and also Duke likes to go small sometimes. Um, but but I'm I'm a little disappointed. Uh, I, I was really looking forward to to Chase Jeter being more of an impact player on the inside, a little bit um, better, uh, uh, you know, offensively. Um, and and so that's that's been a little bit disappointing for me so far. But um, it's largely been a, a very good start to the season. I mean that I'm I'm sort of you know picking nits here, um, so to speak. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. I, I was just going to say quickly on Jeter. I actually disagree with you. I. I didn't expect much from Jeter this year. I didn't. I didn't see him getting pushed out of the rotation by Plumlee. I saw him getting pushed out of the rotation by Brandon Ingram having to play the four a lot, which hasn't really happened yet. Um, but I, I didn't. I didn't feel like there was as much hype on Jeter as as there would be for a guy with his size and and mobility. Uh, I, I don't think that that nationally we were hearing about him as much as as you hear about other guys who are like six ten, six eleven, and and as you say, really bouncy. Uh, so in my mind, I, it's not that I was writing him off for the season, but I wasn't expecting him to contribute a ton. I actually think he's contributing exactly what I thought he would and that he's going to improve probably next year, maybe into his junior year. And that like one of those two years, it's going to it's going to click for him. And all of a sudden he's just going to be able to score the ball from like anywhere within 12 feet. And and we're going to be like, oh, my God, Chase Jeter, what like what is he doing? Uh, but so, yeah, I, I guess in that sense, I disagree with you, Jason. But. It's an interesting, 
it's an interesting perspective on it. I'm not really sure that we talked about him a lot in the preseason, so we didn't get a sense of where we all stood. I, I look forward to the day that he scores anything inside of 12 feet. I think that will be <laughs> that'll be a lot of fun to watch when it's coming. When, uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, all right, guys. So, so uh, my next challenge for you is a is a little bit tougher. I want one really smart thing, one thing you've observed so far that you're like, you know, damn, people have not talked about this. This is not an obvious thing, but I'm going to tell you something now that Duke fans, you're going to be surprised to hear, um, uh, Donald. Be smart for me first. Okay, Jason, so are, I, are you sure before Donald starts, Jason? Are you sure you don't want to take this first because you got burned the last time for going last? <laughs> oh, I don't, want to, I don't want. I don't want to ruin it for you. you. You know what? That's a good idea because I only have one smart thing. So if one of you says it, I'm going to feel like an idiot. So I'll I'll go first. My one smart thing. You ready? Duke is not a good passing team. Um, Duke is averaging 11.8 assists per game this far this season, 11.8 assists per game. That is not a lot of assists. So I, I sort of went, I went, you know, that I'm kind of surprised. I, I'll look historically to see when was the last time we averaged that few assists per game. I started looking, I, I went back, um, you know, last season we averaged almost 15 assists a game. In 2012, uh, I'm sorry, 2013 to 14, we averaged 14 and a half. 12 to 13, we averaged uh, 14. Um, so I started looking, when was the last time we had less than 12 assists per game? And I'm going and I'm going, going I'll get back 2000. We're like at 18 assists a game in 2000, 2001. I'm, I'm back to 1990, 1991. We're at like 17, 18 assists a game. The last time the Duke averaged less than 12 assists per game was 1981 to 82. Um, you may recall that year we went 10 and 17 and uh, the athletic director, Tom Butters, was almost run out of town because he just hired this idiot coach named Mike Krzyzewski. And what was he thinking? And Duke was terrible and woeful and bad. That's the last time Duke averaged less than 12 assists per game. We're at 11.8 assists per game right now this on this season. And we're, we've already played a lot of these sort of easy early season games where you rack up a lot of points and you get a lot of assists. I mean, look, when we play games against some of the really good defensive teams in the ACC, when we play Syracuse, when we play Louisville, um, uh, Miami, uh, North Carolina, there are a number of very good teams in the ACC, very good at defense. Virginia, my goodness, I, I didn't mention Virginia yet. It's going to be hard to get assists against teams like that. Um, Duke is just not a team that is – doing a great job of passing and setting other guys up. And I'll tell you one of the reasons why, and here's where my smart thing becomes sort of an obvious thing. Um, right now, our offense is pretty much all about Grayson Allen taking it to the hole, um, taking it to the basket. Uh, the other places we get a lot of offense, uh, Marshall Plumley and Emil Jefferson getting putbacks. Um, uh, even beyond Grayson Allen, guys like Ingram and Thornton and Matt Jones, they all drive it to the basket a tremendous amount. We're creating off the dribble. We're not creating off the pass. Now, how is that going to work out for Duke over the course of the season? I don't know, but I worry tremendously about what this team will look like when we get to January. And like I say, we're playing tougher ACC opponents and those driving lanes that are that are available against the kind of teams we've been playing so far, you know, driving lanes that are avail again, available against Siena, Bryant, Yale, and Utah State, those driving lanes may not be available when you're playing, uh, you know, some really high-quality opponents. So my one smart thing is, Duke is not yet a good passing team, not at all, and I really hope that that reverses, that trend changes, uh, and I have a bad feeling it may not just because we have so many guys who seem to want to take the ball to the hole by themselves, you know, which is okay because they're doing a great job of it, but it is a source of concern for me. 
just just to follow on your point before we move to Donald's that yeah yeah um, please that I think that um, what we're looking for on on that issue is to see how Derek Thornton improves over the next few weeks. I think that his development as a point guard is going to be crucial to this team having a little bit more of a passing identity. And you're right. I mean, it's it's a little scary how much of the offense is reliant on Grayson Allen taking the ball and being athletic, and you know, and which is which is tough. And as, as I mentioned, that with the Gerald Henderson comp, the reason that I think that Grayson Allen is a good comp to Gerald Henderson is that they're similarly sized guys, meaning that they're not that big. Uh, you know, they're they're big for college shooting guards, but once Grayson Allen gets into the lane, there are always going to be guys who are a lot bigger than he is. Uh, to contest whatever he's about to do. And not that, yeah, I think he's really been, he's been very impressive, but we know what his moves are. Um, you know, we, we know that he likes to go with his right hand and dunk it. Um, we know that he likes that, that stutter Euro step. And, and it's not like he has, you know, this wide variety of moves around the rim. He's not Kyrie Irving with the ball. So um, I think that Derek Thornton's development is going to be crucial in, in hopefully fixing that problem. I, I hear you. My one concern about Derek Thornton is uh, what I've seen from him so far has not been a guy that really is a savant passing the ball. Um, no. uh, what I've seen so far is a guy who is a very, very good dribbler and gets in the lane and gets his own shot really nicely. But I really haven't seen him yet be the kind of guy who's setting players up a tremendous amount. Um, and so, you know, maybe maybe it's that something that he will develop into, but I haven't really seen it yet. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. Go ahead. Let, let's throw it to Donald. Let's hear his smart thing. All right. So yeah, Donald, Donald, be smart for me. Okay. So my smart thing is this. Um, so Emil Jefferson is averaging 10.8 boards a game. And even though he, you know, he's listed at 225, I mean, you know, he looks more like the rail thin 175-pound uh, kid that he was as a freshman. So what is he doing this year that he's, uh, that he's not – that he wasn't doing in years past? He's getting excellent positioning on the blocks, and I think his footwork has increased, has improved dramatically from last season to this season, and that is causing him to be in a better position to pull down more rebounds and not have to work as hard at doing it. Uh, we still see his. I don't know if he's watching tapes of old Dennis Rodman when he was with the Pistons, but that's kind of the footwork that I'm seeing from him early this year, and that is helping him not only on on defense but on offense. Uh, so I, I think that's my smart thing is that, you know, whatever he's been doing with the footwork, it's really paying off for him so far. And it's one of those things that can last, that can sustain him. It's not going to be one of those things where, you know, he's averaging 10.8 boards a game now, but his footwork will not allow for him to do that, you know, going forward. If he continues improving on, on what he's doing in his getting his positioning on the blocks and allowing him to pull down rebounds, that's going to sustain all the way through. And I think it's rubbing off of Marshall Plumley as well because, you know, Marshall Plumley has improved his footwork as well. I don't know if they've been doing the same kind of drills or what they've been doing, but it, it really is a market improvement from last year. I love that you brought that up. That It's a great point. I think, you know, we didn't mention him in surprises that much, but Emil Jefferson, um, to me, you know, as well as he played – Last year, he he is he's one of the big surprises on the team. This year, he has been fabulous thus far this season. Um, uh, and and you're right. It's uh, he, he just seems to be smarter than everyone else around the basket. He seems to know where the ball is going to be. He seems to know how to position his body. Um, Donald, I I my hat is off to you. That is a, an excellent excellent observation. All right, Sam, 
it is your turn to be smart. Well, I was going to talk about how Emil Jefferson's averaging a double double and how improved he was this year. So, um, I <laughs> great minds think alike. So, thanks, Donald. Um, you're a jerk. But no, I, so I'm, I'm going to improvise two minor points and I'm going to see if they coalesce into something. You guys ready? Go for it. All right. The first point is that when we talk about uh, kids in recruiting, we always think about uh, what their impact is going to be like their first or second year. And I think when Emil Jefferson committed, Emil Jefferson, if you guys remember, was a late commitment. He was he was thinking about going to NC State, I think, and he was thinking about going to Duke. And there was there there might have been another school in there. Maybe it was like Villanova or something. Um, yes, yes, because yeah, he's from because he's, uh, he's, he's from Philly. Philly. Yeah, yeah, Mark is Philly. And, sorry, and people were like, "Oh, we got Emil Jefferson." Like. For, there was a there was a brief period there because he was in the late signing period where it was like Emil Jefferson is going to be such an impact player for us and he really wasn't early on. Um, but as a senior, Emil Jefferson, as Donald has pointed out, has has become one of the most integral members of the team. And if you know the sort of National Player of the Year, All American discussion focused on not just you know scoring and, and like not, I mean is he has good numbers he has, he's averaging a double double, um, but having all the intangibles and playing defense and all those things, Emil Jefferson is like one of the most complete like sneakily one of the most complete players in the country in that he doesn't do anything wrong. He doesn't do anything spectacular, um, but he does everything really well. Well, and his free throw shooting sucks. His free, okay, fine. Uh, his free throw shooting does <laughs> But I was going to say that between him and Matt Jones, who I think didn't have like any recruiting hype, I think he committed early and, uh, and there wasn't like a ton to say about Matt Jones. He was like, he was a shooting guard. He was he was you know a top twenty, top thirty type of guy. Um, yeah, no, he, he was actually like top thirty five or so. I mean, Matt Jones yeah. was not high, highly highly touted. And he came in with Jabari Parker, and everybody just wanted to talk about Jabari Parker. Um, right. Those guys now have you know they're they're the days when we talk about them recruits is long gone. Um, but they have now grown old. They have grown beards, which I I like very much. Um, and they appear to have you know taken the whole team under their their enormous defensive wings. And, and have turned into these incredible players. And I think that the kind of lesson here is that when we are talking about kids in recruiting, um, we need to think a lot more about what they mean as impacts in their third and fourth years, especially for guys you know, like Jefferson and Jones who weren't going to the NBA initially. You know, like maybe maybe they'll get shots at the NBA. I don't know if they will. Um, but that, that their impact on the program is being felt towards the end of their careers and not at the beginning. And I think that they're probably dismissed early on as like, oh, well, these are bench guys. Like maybe they'll transfer because everyone wants to talk about everybody transferring. Um, but they've become two of the most important members of the team. And and I think that when you watch these games, you can see a lot of moments where Emil Jefferson and Matt Jones are like are, are mentoring guys on the court and they're and they're pumping the team up and they're but they're also keeping them steady. I think that they're they you, I've read some things about Matt Jones kind of being like the grandfather of this team, uh, which seems to suit him so well. But it's such an impossible thing to think about when he's 17 or he's 18 and coming into the program. That's kind of like the, the one of the observations I'm making. And the other thing, uh, I don't know if that was smart. Here's the other thing that's probably not smart, is that uh, I want to overreact to Luke Kennard's performance today against Utah State, which I've mentioned already today that I really, really liked. And that I think that it's – it's going to be a catalyst for him to become a major player on this team. Uh, he, I think, hopefully now has the confidence to uh, to take the ball and do something interesting with it. You know, to not just to shoot threes like we we expected him to do, but to move around uh, inside the three point line to create shots for himself. And maybe, uh, you know, when we're talking about in, increasing Duke's uh, assist numbers, maybe Luke Kennard is going to be a guy who's going to start passing the ball. Um, I think that. 
I think that today's game against Utah State is going to be a catalyst for Luke Kennard to become a more integral player on this team and to like bring his scoring average up. And that by the end of the year, we're going to be like, man, super sub Luke Kennard. What a uh, what a key cog in us winning the sixth national championship for Coach K. Ooh, I love the sound of that. Sam, by the way, I asked for smart things, not predictions. The Luke Kennard thing was a prediction. But it could be I was going to talk about Emil Jefferson, but then I had to sidetrack and make some stuff up. So this is this is what you get. Yeah, hey, hey I, I I like it. It was good, and and the the first half of your your thing was excellent as well. So I love it, guys. I I think we actually came off as as kind of smart there, which is not bad, not bad at all. Let's not give ourselves um, too much credit. Um, yeah, well, I said kind of smart. My I, brain works hey. from time to time, and and that was a good time. I'm coming off <laughs> I'm coming off a very uh, a very low stress Thanksgiving break where I did a lot of eating. Um, and not a whole lot of thinking. So um, this is good. This is, this is, I'll, I'll go back to work tomorrow and, and maybe be a little bit more uh, intellectually rejuvenated. Yeah. Well, I'm coming off a Thanksgiving break where I had a cold. Can you guys tell I'm still a little stuffy and, and, and clogged up? I'm, I'm not doing great here, guys. Right. Exactly. Hey, Sam, I've got a question for you. How old were you on February 26th of 2000? February 26, 2000, I would have been about to turn 11. 11 years old? Yeah. So that February 26, 2000. A couple months. Yeah. February 26 of 2000 um, was the last time Duke lost a non-conference game at home. About 120 games ago, we played St. John's. Um, and uh, and there's, a, there's a threat. There's a serious chance that this week um, Duke could, that, uh, you know, unbelievably long, non-conference home win streak um, could come to an end because Duke plays Indiana. If you want, want, wait, Jason, if you want the the better context on, um, on that loss, Ron Artest was the star of that St. John's team. Is that right? (laughs) Uh, Wasn't it? Yeah. 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 Was Boosie later or was that, that was, I forget that game. I try to block that game out of my mind though. I thought it was, uh, I thought it was Ron Artest. Maybe I have that wrong. No, no. I, I, I think, I think Bootsy was on that team. We're, we're going to look foolish. Someone's going to look us up on the internet. We're going to look no, like Boosie idiots. Boosie Thorne is the one that played really well. Um, yeah. But, right, right. But uh, I think he played really well the year before. He played really well the year before, and then and then that year he played well again, but he wasn't – I don't know. Someone uh, – we need to Google St. John's, February 26, 2000, and find out what I'm, happened in that game. I'm here on, I'm here on Meta World Peace's uh, uh, Wikipedia page. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Meta – Oh, never mind. He wasn't on the team. He had just left college at. Yeah, it was uh, Eric. Wasn't it Eric Barkley? Wasn't uh, was it Barkley? Yeah. yeah. Okay, there was so, someone. So what Ron I remember Artest about that was like, a, was like a rookie in the league uh, when this happened. So he had just. What I remember. Left St. John's. What I remember about that game was there was someone for St. John's, some young point guard. I think it was Eric Barkley who had been in some kind of trouble of some sort. I forget what it was. And Coach K said to the fans. Hey, Cameron Crazies, don't be too hard on this guy. You know, don't, don't, you know, don't razz him too much. And whoever the guy was came out and had a great game against us, and we lost. <laughs> right. Um, that's what I remember about that. Show you, it just goes to show you that you shouldn't let up on the opposing team. No, but so the reason I brought this up, as I was about to say, is the ACC Sorry. Big Ten challenges this week, and we play Indiana. <clears throat> I have seen Indiana play. Um, I saw them play. 
Wake Forest. I also saw a little bit of their game against UNLV this past week. Um, and just want to give you a quick preview of Indiana and then let you guys chime in and you know give me some thoughts on, on what you think about this matchup because th- this is a, a, a major threat to Duke's non-conference home win streak. Indiana is not a pushover. They're a pretty good team. When they played Wake Forest, the game I watched them play, they got destroyed on the boards. Wake absolutely owned them on the boards. Wake grabbed 18 offensive rebounds. Indiana only had 19 defensive rebounds, which means basically every time Wake missed a shot, there was a 50-50 chance that Wake was going to get it back, which is not good. Um, so they they killed uh, – Wake killed Indiana on the boards. Um, and uh, – and, and, I thought this was going to be a trend for Indiana, so I turned around and uh, uh, and watched them play UNLV a few days later, and they out-rebounded UNLV. So I'm like, what's up with this Indiana team? I can't figure them out. But they lost to UNLV, by the way, because they couldn't hold on to the ball. They committed 21 turnovers. Against Wake, they only committed 14 turnovers. So it's like I, I couldn't figure them out. So I've d- done a little more digging um, on Indiana. Their best player is unquestionably their senior guard, lightning quick kid named Yogi Farrell. He leads the teams in in points, rebounds, and assists, which is not an easy thing to do. <laughs> to lead in those three categories is truly impressive. Uh, and, and he's got big numbers. I mean, 15 and a half points a game, six and a half rebounds a game, seven assists a game. Um, they run everything through him. He's their most important player. Uh, I, I'm really looking forward. I, I would imagine Matt Jones is going to play him, and I'm really looking forward to that. Um uh, he's not a great outside shooter, and he's the only guy on their team who averages more than 27 minutes a game. They've got seven other players who all play between 18 and 25 minutes each, um, and uh, so you know this is a fairly deep team. They don't rely on any one guy at one time, other than Yogi Ferrell being in the game a lot. Um, and and one guy I want you to really be on the lookout for uh, a, 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 another senior. This is an experienced team, Nick Zeisloft, who is. So far in the season, we were talking about small sample sizes with three-point shooting. He is an absurd 60% thus far this year, um, shooting from from long range, shooting from three, 60%. And that's, you know, that's the small sample size of this season. Last season, he hit 45% of his threes. So shooting 60% this year is no fluke. This is a guy who can legitimately shoot the three ball really well. They like him to shoot six, seven, maybe even eight threes a game. You know, that's going to be a big part of their game plan against Duke. And then the other guy I want to point out that you should be on the lookout for, um, Tom Bryant, is a, a freshman. You know, Indiana, I mentioned, has a, a number of good senior, good experienced players. they got a couple decent freshmen, and their best freshman is Thomas Bryant. He's a big man. He's a stud. He's a very good shot blocker. Um, he's still figuring it out offensively and a lot of other things. It's going to be very interesting to see how he does against our really, really experienced big men. Um, I think that could be a place where Duke has a has a major advantage on them, and it's probably kind of bad for Indiana that their guard Yogi Ferrell is getting more rebounds than their stud freshman big man Thomas Bryant. Um, so this could be a game where Duke's big men um, really have a good day on the boards. Um, we know how well uh, uh, Plumley and Jefferson have been um, have been doing so far this season, and and I think one key for our for us in this game will be for them to continue to do really really well. Um, uh, Donald, you got anything to add about Indiana? What you're looking forward to in this game? No, I, I think you hit every every nail on the head. I, I think the the big question for me uh, was the inside. I think, like you said, I think our interior, our big men, can have a a really nice game against Indiana if uh, if we focus in on that. I'm wondering how the zone's going to work and how we employ it. You know, as we've said before, Coach K is smarter than all of us, and I think it's going to be really interesting to see how 
uh, that zone works up against that offense because I think uh, uh, that'll be a really interesting dynamic in in the uh, in the battle. How about yeah. you, Sam? I, I like that you touched on Yogi Ferrell and probably being guarded by Matt Jones. The interesting thing about that being that Yogi Ferrell is only 6'1". Uh, so if you were just lining the guys up, Matt Jones is probably not taking him based on size, but based on ability, you know, he's he's our best perimeter defender and he's the one you're probably going to want on Yogi Ferrell. So I, I don't know if we're going to need the zone. I, I wonder if it's just a matter of having Jones hound Ferrell for – however long it takes for him to get out of his rhythm. And then, and then they won't even need to employ the zone. Um, the other thing that I wanted to bring up, which wasn't really a, uh, a strategy thing against Indiana, just an interesting story. I was listening to the um, CBS college basketball podcast, which I recommend, by the way, it's really good. Uh, it's Gary Parish hosted. And uh, I was listening to that earlier and they were talking about uh, curse Tom Crane and, and how everything Everything goes wrong for him, it seems like. And the most recent crazy thing that went wrong with his program is that um, one of the uh, mothers of one of the prominent players in the team, Troy Williams, had a Facebook post about how her son needs to get the F out of uh, Indiana um, after he was benched in the game against St. John's. And uh, there was like a whole oh, blow-up about it. it. It was really crazy. You, 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 should, you should look it up. It was, it was Troy Williams' mother. And she posted this thing, and she took it down, and she apologized, and all these things. And then there may have been something about uh, – about her like faking or uh, saying that it, she was hacked, which is ridiculous because every time any any person says that, they're just lying. Um, but uh, but so Tom Cream was like in the middle of this of this enormous uh, uh, poop storm, for be- lack of a better word, uh, <laughs> this week because of because of this whole stupid thing. And uh, it he's kind of in a weird position because when he got hired there, I, I don't know how you guys felt about Tom Cream when he was at Marquette. I always was under the impression that he was a really good coach. And that he was going to be successful yeah, in Indiana. I agree. Mm-hmm. When he when he went there, um, I remember when he had his introductory press conference. They asked him, like, you know, what was important about about you taking, like, why did you take this job? It was some some kind of question like that. And he goes, "It's Indiana." Like he he was like he had this sort of gravity about the thing. He was going to coach at this important program. Like, yeah, they're one of the most one of the most prominent. Um, college basketball programs in the country with a fan base that is as good as anybody else's that, that cares about their team. And, uh, and it hasn't quite clicked for them. You know, they've, they've had seasons where they were really good with like Cody Zeller. Um, that team was, a was like ranked number one for a while. I think they were ranked going into the tournament, but then they like lost in the sweet 16. Um, and so Tom Crean's kind of always been in a weird place in Indiana. And, you know, this is going to be one of those games that they're going to, that they're going to measure him by. And if this is his last season, I think that, if he if he loses to Duke uh, here in this game, it's like, oh, well, you know, Indiana can't beat Duke or Indiana can't beat, you know, whoever, whatever other top program it is. Um, I think that this this game is going to be important for Tom Crean going forward. And uh, not that not that it'll probably ultimately decide his fate, because his fate is going to is going to be decided upon, like how well he does in the tournament, how well he does in the Big Ten. Um, but he's kind of an interesting character to watch. He's got a really weird relationship with with their fan base. I think a lot of them don't like him. Um, for some reason, just because he's he's really strange. Uh, but I was always under the impression that he was a good basketball coach. So, well, um, I mean, one reason they don't like him is that they still remember the legend. They still remember Bobby Knight. And it is really hard. I don't care how many years it's been when the fans still have very fresh memories of guys who brought them multiple national titles and put them on the map and made them into one of the most important basketball programs in the country. Um, it it's really hard to replace a guy like that. 
I mean, look at look at what almost happened to Les Miles. This not that I want to segue, you know, fully into college football, but look at what happened almost happened to Les Miles this week, where LSU almost fired a coach that's been like one of the like four most successful coaches in college football over the last like nine years or however mm-hmm. long he's been there, um, because he couldn't be Nick Saban. And uh, yeah, it's, I, it's I amazing was what some of these. It's amazing what some of these fan bases will will believe about their programs. Um, you know when when they aren't the very best, the very best. And I got it. It's just like another another warning for for Duke fans. Whenever Coach K decides to hang it up, um, the guy who replaces him will not be him. And and Duke is not going to be as good under whoever insert any name coach you want uh, is not going to be as good under that coach as they are under Mike Krzyzewski. Uh, you know, so there, it, there's a there was a great column on CBS. I think it was on CBS Sportsline um, about how badly former Duke athletic director Joe Oliva, um, how badly he botched the past week or so with the whole Les Miles stuff, and and Oliva was pursuing Jimbo Fisher, and Jimbo Fisher down at Florida State kind of went. Thanks, but no thanks. And then suddenly Oliva went, hey, Les Miles, stick around. We'd love to have you stay here. And this column just ripped Joe Oliva. It was a friend of mine sent it to me. I was just like, oh, that's just great. Because even though Joe Oliva is a former Duke guy, um, I think a lot of people at Duke don't have very fond memories of him. Um, his most notable things he did while he was at Duke was hire Carl Franks um, and, uh, and, oh, Ted who, Roof and, and Ted and Roof. He did hire Coach Cutcliffe. Yeah, um, he did. It was on his way out, but he did do it. Uh, so he has he has one feather in his cap for that. Yeah, but almost everyone involved in the process say that because of the Franks and Roof debacles, look, nice guys, they did things the right way. Duke did not win at all under them. But because of those debacles, uh, my understanding is, I've heard from multiple sources, that um, the, the Cutcliffe hire was really out of Oliva's hands. Yeah, I, 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 I would... Absolutely believe that as a as an observer of the thing from afar. When he left for LSU, it wasn't a, oh please stay. It was a, oh you're leaving for LSU. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> he left for he left for a football school. So I guess that's a step up in that sense. He was, but he was going to a school that has all kinds of financial troubles and is not the top dog in their in their football division by any means. Um, obviously, they've been successful under Les Miles and and I guess therefore under Joe Oliva, but. Uh, I, I don't think anyone is saying, "Oh man, LSU's been so good at football the last eight or ten years because because Joe Oliva was there." No, no, I don't think anyone is saying that. But anyway, I, you know, I just I kind of like banging on Joe Oliva. I'm not a big fan of his. I don't like what he did at Duke. But um, so we've gone far, far, far afield now. Um, I want to bring us back to where we were, which was the ACC Big Ten Challenge. There are 14 games coming up this week um, between ACC teams and Big Ten teams. Um, a really quick, uh, give me a prediction, guys. Donald, let me start with you. Uh, uh, you know, what do you think the score of the challenge will be this year? Um, not that it really matters in the grand scheme of things, but what do you think it'll be? So I'm looking at the the slate of games, and you know, there's obviously the Maryland North Carolina game, um, and probably Louisville Michigan State in addition to our our game. Uh, but the rest of these matchups aren't really good. Uh, but if I'm looking at it, give me the ACC, give it to me eight to six. Sam. It took me a second to realize how many games are being played because I don't have any idea how many teams are in each of these. Uh, each of these conferences. <laughs> there are fourteen um, games. Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech is the Georgia Tech is team that, that does not get poor, to participate. Poor Georgia Tech. That is that is not that is not a good uh, that is not a good indicator for for Brian Gregory keeping his job. 
um, that they were not invited to play in this in this event. But uh, I also like the ACC. I think that there are a number of ACC teams that have looked better than expected and that the top of the Big Ten has not looked as good. Other, I think outside of Michigan State um, has not looked as good as expected. I think that Indiana has, has, has obviously underwhelmed, as we've highlighted. Um, uh, Maryland has not lost yet, but doesn't seem to be the you know, elite destroyer of worlds that, that I think a lot of people thought they were going to be when they added Robert Carter and Rashid Suleiman. Um, so I'll also take the ACC. Uh, how many games is it? 14? Uh, 14. Well, ACC also 8-6. to six. Maybe, maybe I'll go 9-5. to five. Um, well, I, I think that, uh, I think that Miami's looked really solid. Um, I think that, uh, you know, that there's, it, it, it just feels like the, the ACC has, has performed well outside of a couple teams. I think that, I think Notre Dame is, is underwhelming a lot. Um, but, uh, but the, the top of the big 10 doesn't look great. And that the top of the ACC looks very, very strong. So um, uh, we were talking about, you know, say something smart earlier. A guy who's very smart about basketball is Ken Pomeroy. Um, I trust Ken. Uh, Ken, um, Ken has nine ACC teams in his top 40. That's kind of ridiculous. Big number. <laughs> that is a big number. Um, he has a, a bunch of ACC teams in his top 20. Um, uh, and, uh, and Virginia's number three. Duke is number five. UNC's number six. I mean, he loves the ACC. Uh, if you look at his rankings, he predicts the ACC will win nine out of the 14 games, go nine and five. And um, Ken is smarter than I am. So I'm going to also go with nine and five. Um, you know, you guys, you know, it's obvious to say that this UNC Maryland game is a, is a game to watch. Um, you know, the game I'm really looking forward to is Michigan State and Louisville. Um, uh, Louisville's five and zero on the season. They've been blowing the doors off the teams they've played. I mean, they haven't played anyone any good, but they're still crushing teams. They're only allowing like 50 or 53 points a game, something like that. I forget the exact number, but like no one is scoring on them at all. I mean, really impressive. So I'm really looking forward to see that game against Michigan State. Um, Darnell Valentine from Michigan State is like, is right now, no question about it, player of the year in the country. I mean, play, uh, yeah, he's he's the best player in the country at this moment. So I'm really looking forward to see that Louisville-Michigan State game. Um, and then the other game I'm looking forward to, uh, friend of the podcast, Coach Chris Collins of Northwestern. They're playing Virginia Tech. Now, I'm not saying this is two of the better teams <laughs> that are going to be in the challenge, but um, uh, Northwestern is 5-1. and one. They have a nice win over Missouri. Missouri is a power five team. That's a good win. And they played pretty well against UNC the other day. Um, they had a lead a couple times in that game. They lost control of it late, but um, Northwestern looks pretty good. They, they lost their best player, Vic Law, to a shoulder injury. If they didn't lose him, I think Northwestern would be someone who you know, might even be knocking on the top 25 or so. But they've got a real shot at making the tourney this year for the first time in history. If you haven't heard that before, Northwestern has never been to the NCAA tournament. And Coach Collins, they've got a shot at it this year. They really do. And so, uh, you know, I, I want to watch that game because I think it'd be a, a good win for them. Not that Virginia Tech is that good, but anytime you can beat another Power 5 team, it's an important thing. And then the last game I want to point out, I think should maybe pay attention to, is Florida State and Iowa. Um, and I mentioned this because Florida State's one of those ACC teams that looks like they may be better than we thought they would be. Florida State has, get this, two freshman guards, freshmen, two of them who are averaging more than 20 points a game. 
That's insane. Dwayne Bacon and Malik Beasley. Malik Beasley, by the way, is is from like my backyard. He's from here in Atlanta, just outside of Atlanta. Um, uh, so props to the Atlanta boy. But they've got two kids averaging 20 points a game who are both freshmen. Um, and they're going to be playing a, a pretty good Iowa team um, that gave Notre Dame a very good game and just crushed Wichita. Uh, Wichita State, by the way, a top 25 team. Iowa just crushed them by 20-plus points. So that Florida State-Iowa matchup, I think, is a really good matchup. Um, uh, it's the very last one that happens in the challenge. And if the challenge is close, you know, that could be the one that, that determines things. Um, you guys ain't got anything else on the uh, Big Ten ATC challenge before we move on? Miami-Nebraska is a funny football game. <laughs> they actually that's play all, this year. That's all. I, that would have been. They, a, did, they did play this year. Would have been a great football game like ten years ago or so. That'd be like and you like, know prime like, time. I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to dump on Donald too much. But like fifteen years ago. Twenty yeah, years yeah, ago. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. About fifteen. <laughs> on both sides. Um, hey, but actually, Nebraska wait. One be, other thing to. Uh, I was going to say Nebraska be another one of those football programs that uh, where uh, if you're thinking about firing, you're generally successful. Um, but not best in the world football coach. Don't do it. Yep. True. True. <laughs> That's all I have to say about well, that. I don't think they're a good hey, basketball the, team. Hey, the one other thing to look out for in the challenge is that Marcus Page says he's going to be back and he's going to play against Maryland. That's going to be a so, really good game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's like that may be the top sort of preseason, you know, before the conference regular season. That may be the top game in the country. I mean, that's. And, that's and, and not that either of those teams, I think, has has been the world beater that that people expected them to be, but they're both very solid teams, and it should be a very good game between them. And just like with Duke, Kentucky, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see Maryland, North Carolina, be a game we see down the road in the tournament, late in the tournament again. Uh, not that I'm rooting for such a thing; that would be horrible. But uh, but just th- those are those are two very solid veteran teams that uh, that that face. Uh, good tests against each other in that game. Well, and and you pointed out Rashid Suleiman um, is playing for Maryland and playing very very well for them. Yes. Um, playing as well for them as he played at Duke, you know, back in his freshman year, he was somewhat disappointing after that freshman season. But um, he he's he's playing great ball for Maryland. He's one of the best offensive players in that team, no question about it. Okay, so that killed it. That was silent. All right, that's fine. <laughs> that's yeah, he's good. What do you want to say? Rashid Suleiman's really no, good. We're done. Yeah, Rashid. Hey, I okay. like him. They have. Oh wait, I, I do want to say on Maryland. Um, for the first time, like in as long as I can remember, Maryland. I I don't remember which game it was that I that I caught them for a few minutes, but they have nice uniforms. Uh, they had some kind of throwback uniform going on that I actually liked, um, which made me feel really gross. And then I went and took a shower. <laughs> I hope, I hope you took multiple showers if you, was, if you were in those jerseys. No, no, no. There, it was a – I can't – it might have been the Georgetown game. Um, but they had some kind of throwback jerseys that I thought were cool looking uh, that didn't have, you know, 100 different colors on them uh, and, and with the flag, like, tattooed on the players' faces or anything. Yeah, you'd think they'd have really cool uniforms because Under Armour, like, lives – Under Armour's entire purpose in the world is to help the Maryland athletic program. Um, and they, so they supply everything to them. And, yeah, I've always been amazed. Their uniforms, I think, are so ordinary looking. You'd think they'd do something really cool, but, yeah, whatever. Um, hey, uh, so we're done with basketball. Uh, an hour of talking basketball. We're finished with it. Hey, let's give a quick wrap-up of the football season. Um uh, I think since the podcast was last on, Duke lost 
one or two more games, but we won. We did win. We beat Wake Forest this weekend, a, a nice close to the regular season. Um, we have a bowl game coming up. Donald, you were telling me you, you think uh, military bowl or, or which one? Shreveport? Shreveport. I, so I, my, my educated guess is that we end up in, in the Annapolis, not Indianapolis, uh, for the military bowl. Um, but I do Charles think Barkley. that it's not that it, it ends up being Shreveport for us, um, which would be uh, an SEC team um, in that matchup. Oh, maybe we could get Georgia. Uh, still Georgia. Gonna be, they're still going to be coached by Mark Rick in this game, so I, I would be scared of them. Well, he got fired, so maybe not. No, no, no. They, no, no, they announced that he's, he's sticking, coach the ball he's sticking around. His his fire. The news on his firing was very strange. And maybe maybe Jason read more than we did because he lives down there. Um, but it was like they were trying to let him down as easy as possible. But they were definitely still firing him. Like he's still going to coach in the bowl game, and he's still like maybe a part of the program in sort of a senior advisor role. But he is not the head coach anymore. Um, I, that, you know, was, if, it, yeah. What, what, what I was going to say. I, I haven't read that much about it because um, if you listen to sports talk radio in 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 Atlanta, they do nothing but talk about the Georgia Bulldogs. It's like it's like Georgia Tech doesn't exist. They talk Georgia football like non friggin stop. So the speculation about Mark Rick's fate has basically been the only thing on the radio for like the past month. Um, Mark Richt is was a really good uh, was a I'm sorry I'm not eulogizing him he's a really good guy he did things the right way I mean Georgia is not a program that traditionally has has kids who graduate or you know don't break the law <laughs> um, usually they're a program that's in a lot of trouble and Mark Richt for the most part has has kept them away from that as much as possible and um, he's done things the right way he's he's a he's a gentleman no question about it, he's a gentleman and they won a lot but they did win enough. And so he's gone. Um, I mean, he's gone, even though he has the kind of record that 95% of the schools in division one would kill for 98% probably would kill for, but it ain't Alabama. And and now that Florida's back and Florida's really good again, I think the Georgia fans are like, forget it. We're done. We're getting rid of the guy, um, but he's a good guy. And uh, I, I, yeah, I don't want, I don't want Duke to play Georgia. Um, Cause I really want us to win our bowl game. If we play in the military bowl, we're going to get Navy. Navy's really good, I think. Maybe they might be good. I'm, I'm. I think the thing that I wanted to say about the football team, sort of in general, a couple of weeks ago when we, uh, we were in our little our break from this from the show, um, was that this season, very closely, I think, um, mirrored the 2012 season, the first season that Duke was bowl eligible under David Cutcliffe, where they started really hot. They were they were five and one, and then they were six and one, and then like everything fell apart. Um, but Unlike that season, Duke managed to finish the year with a win uh, against Wake Forest, and hopefully that bodes well for them going into the bowl game. I think that the team seemed very demoralized last week. Uh, just all the all the things that had been going on, getting destroyed by North Carolina and the and the whole debacle against Miami. Um, I think hopefully the players were able to put all that stuff behind. Them, got the win. Uh, by all accounts, they the players were were genuinely excited about winning the game against Wake Forest, and hopefully it means that they're going to be in in good spirits and 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 feeling good about themselves going into the bowl game. Uh, and this, I believe, if I'm remembering this correctly, this is going to be the first year that Duke has finished the regular or has finished the pre bowl game season um, with a victory because the, the year they won the Coastal Division, they obviously then got murdered by Florida State um, in the ACC championship game. So. Uh, th this is uncharted territory, and hey, uh, as much as 
uh, people I think are down on on the football team this year. The Duke football team just won seven games, and people think that like, oh man, what a what a bummer, what a disappointment. Um, I don't think Carl Franks won seven games. Did Carl Franks win seven games? Yeah, and Ted Roof didn't. I don't, I don't know if we didn't win. We only won six in like four games. years at Duke. So yeah, seven six, and six in four years. Six in four years. It's uh, so so again. Um, you know, I, I don't know how many times we can say it. What an incredible job that David Cutcliffe has done. That people are unhappy about winning seven games. Duke. I mean, I guess I guess that this season teaches us why we can look at programs like Georgia and Nebraska and be like. Why would they get rid of these very successful coaches? Well, I guess, you know, at a certain point, you get used to the success and you want more of it. And and neither of those programs is obviously on the mountaintop that, the way that, like, an Alabama is. Um, and and maybe Duke fans are starting to feel that, and it's not even like it's felt that long. And, and you know, hate to break it to you, but in the Coastal Division, UNC looked so good this year, and and who knows when, when that's going to let up. I mean, there was some speculation about – Larry Fedora taking one of the one of these big open SEC jobs, um, and I, you know what? That would be fine by me because he seems to be a really really good coach, and I would rather not have him down the road in Chapel Hill. So a couple comments uh, related to that. First of all, um, uh, Larry Fedora is going to leave UNC. He'd be frigging insane to stick around at Carolina because I think. Anyone with a brain knows that they're about to get slapped with some serious probation. They're about to get slapped with some serious NCAA sanctions. They're probably going to lose some scholarships. They're probably going to be banned from the postseason. I mean, they're going to be in big, big trouble for stuff that, for the most part, didn't happen under Fedora's watch. So um, if you're Larry Fedora and you're one of the hottest coaches in the country, you're probably looking at Texas. I don't know. Could you be looking at, at USC? Um, there, there are a number of – could you be looking at Georgia? He could be looking uh, at you either know. USC, at either of the USCs. Either of the USCs. Exactly. Yes. South Car- Oh, South Carolina could make a lot of sense for him. That's a really good thought. But if I'm Larry Fedora, there ain't no way I'm sticking around at Carolina. It, it makes uh, – he would have to love being there so, so, so much. And they would have to offer him so, so, so much money. <laughs> that I just – I can't imagine. I think he's got to go. There's – He's leaving, right? There's no question there's a, about that. There's a there's a post on the forum um, that Sage Grouse posted, and I'll, and I'll give a shout out to Sage Grouse because I just met him uh, recently at Duke at the uh, Duke Forward event in Denver. Um, very nice guy. I don't know if you guys know him, um, but uh, I know him online quite well. Quite well. He, he and I email all the time. I have finally I have finally met him in person, um, and he's wonderful. He's he's actually exactly like you would think he is, um, based on the way that he posts. Uh, but he posted something on, about about Larry Fedora maybe leaving and asking why David Cutcliffe isn't getting um, isn't getting the same attention because they basically have the same record over the time that that Larry Fedora has been in uh, has been in the ACC and at uh, and at North Carolina um, they're in totally different places in their careers and and Larry Fedora is like still feels like an up and coming guy he is he is already 53 um, but it doesn't feel like he's reached his peak yet David Cutcliffe is like on the wrong side of of heart surgery and and already turned down going back to uh, Tennessee as a head coach. I think that the the door is closed on David Cutcliffe moving on to a different job. Whenever he decides to hang it up at Duke, that's just going to be the it. It's going to be it for his coaching career. Uh, Larry Fedora probably has, as you guys mentioned, probably has another has another promotion uh, in his future, and uh, and seems like a guy who is who is is destined to go on to a, a better school. So. Well, um, you know, regarding Cutcliffe, when he turned, you meant when he turned down the Tennessee job, I think that sort of that sort of took Cutcliffe off the market for any other jobs. Everyone kind of right, went, "Oh, yeah. you know, okay." He, 
that that that, that, that would be his yeah. dream job. And and he said no to his dream job. So clearly he's staying at Duke. And, and I want to bring up one other thing, um, Sam, that you mentioned where you were talking about, um, you know, these other programs, these Nebraska's, these Georgia's, these uh, LSU's where they, you know, get frustrated with a slightly down season. Um, and and they, they vent a little bit of that frustration on their coach. You did not hear a whisper. You didn't hear any criticism of David Cutcliffe from Duke fans this season. Um, I can't imagine anyone would look at how the team did this year and, and think that Cutcliffe didn't do an excellent job. I guess I've heard a couple people complain a little bit there about are, the offensive play calling. Yeah, there are minor things, but not like program level things. No, no. No one is. And, and to be honest, not that I expect this would happen. We could take a step back and I still would, I would still be convinced that, you know, I'm talking, you know, step back next season record-wise, and I would still be convinced that David Cutcliffe is the right man for Duke and that he should be here until he no longer wants to be here. Um, because uh, what he's done, uh, the increase in uh, not just the wins, but the recruiting and the way the program handles itself and, and the attitude around it, um, it's his as long as he wants it. Um, although I imagine folks at Georgia probably said that about Mark Rick three or four years ago, and look where they are today. Yeah, no, it, it's a good point. Um, you know, I, I remember a few years ago, right before Duke made their first bowl game, there was talk about like, well, maybe David Cutcliffe is only capable of having this team like win four games and that and that he's like the he can only be like the bridge coach until they find the real coach who's going to who's going to bring Duke back to prominence. And then that was ridiculous because then a couple of years later, he like won 10 games um, and, and Duke was like the talk of the nation very briefly uh, until they got pancakes by Florida State in that ACC championship game. Yeah, but it, and by the way, this is one the last thing I want to say about football um, as we, uh, you know, uh, as we look ahead to whatever bowl game it is Duke ends up playing in. Um, I, I think it is significant to look at how we've done in bowl games the past few years because uh, we have fared very, very well against some very, very good opponents. Um, the game against Cincinnati was a, a high-scoring, really exciting, very good game that Duke Duke led pretty much the whole way, and then it kind of got away from us late. The game against Texas A&M, that Peach Bowl game, is considered one of the was considered the best bowl game of that year of that season. It was a fabulous game. Everyone thought Texas A&M would crush us, and we played very, very well against them. Again, we had a lead, and then it got away late. Uh, and last year against Arizona State, another team that a lot of people thought was much, much, much better than Duke, and we played them neck and neck the entire game. Um, uh, and my point in all this is I think David Cutcliffe is a smart guy and does a great job of preparing his team for bowl games so that even though it's felt like Duke hasn't done great down the stretch this season. Look, we haven't done great down the stretch the past couple seasons. Um, uh, it feels like we are ready to be um, really successful and really good in this this bowl game coming up the way we have in the other bowl games that we've had um, uh, fairly recently. Donald, you've been quiet for a little while. You got any, anything else on football? Are we all done with that? Yeah, I, I just went to basically mention that, you know, for the senior class, winning a bowl game is – one of probably the only thing left they have to do. They've they've won a coastal ch division title. They've won the most games in 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 Duke history. They've it basically turned this program around. The only thing that is left for them to do is go out on top by winning this bowl game. And so hopefully that happens for them wherever we end up. 
I like it. I like it. Hey guys, it's parting shots time because we've been on this thing just for way, way, way too long. Um, Donald, let me let me start with you. Uh, you got any got any closing thoughts you have before we go? Yeah. So I have two quick ones. The first one, uh, let's give a shout out to Duke Women's Soccer. They made the Final Four. They play is basically at home. They're at Cary this weekend. So anybody who's in the area, uh, get out and support the support the team. It's great for the program. Uh, the Final Four actually sets up to be kind of an ACC versus. Uh, a big 10 because on one side uh, we'll be taking on Florida state on one side of the bracket. And on the other side is Penn state Rutgers. So fitting that this week is all about ACC versus big 10. Um, I, I think this Duke team is a good chance. You know, FSU was the defending national champions. They haven't allowed a goal in their last 10 games, but this Duke team has been playing inspired soccer this postseason, especially when behind and I've been following them uh, over the last few weeks and, you know, they have been doing really well. So they have a good shot. So let's give it up to them. I, I think they've done great, and, and they deserve a little shout-out on this podcast. Now, the second thing I have is a more of a personal note because we started recording uh, on, on the East Coast on November 29th. It is now November 30th. It's just after midnight if you're, if you're listening uh, and kind of following you know, when we're recording this. It is November 30th. It is the <laughs> wait, wait, Donald, 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 Donald. Go ahead. Were you like about to say you're listening live or something like that? Huh? <laughs> There's no one listening but the three of us. <laughs> That's cool, but I just want people to yeah, know yeah, yeah, go the ahead. timeline. So it's November 30th right now, and it is the 33rd anniversary of the greatest album that has ever been released, Michael Jackson's Thriller. 33rd anniversary. Also, it's the 33rd anniversary of me being born. Happy birthday to me. Oh, that's all, Donald. Happy birthday. <laughs> Happy birthday, you, Donald. Thank you. I can't believe you're spending it with us. <laughs> I, 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 no better way to start it off by talking about Duke. So, Aww. I love it. So you and Thriller born the same day. Same day. That's Greatest very day of cool. All time. That is very cool. Hey Sam, you got any parting thoughts for me? Uh, yeah, if we're going to talk about Duke teams that made the Final Four, uh, the field hockey team uh, lost in the Final Four, unfortunately, to North Carolina, who then subsequently lost to Syracuse in the championship. Um, but the Duke women's field hockey team. Did make the final four this year, so shout out to them. I have a I have a few friends from school who were uh, on the field hockey team, um, so they were all very excited about it. And uh, I think that's a, that's all I had. My my birthday was like many months ago. We're we're about as far from my birthday as we could be right now. Um, so uh, no no birthday for me. Uh, but I hope that everybody had a, a good uh, Thanksgiving holiday. I spent my Thanksgiving holiday in in Mexico City, uh, where I ate no turkey. And for that, I am thrilled because I think the turkey is awful. <laughs> Wait, what? Wait, you don't like turkey? Nah. So, so whenever there's turkey, just you can just send it to me. I'll eat your share. All right, we're we're good. If you if you want to send me back whatever like beef you're eating or chicken, uh, I'll I'll trade that. <laughs> well, we'll we'll discuss that. We'll we'll talk about that. All right, we'll we'll figure that out offline. We'll figure that out. Sam, have, have you tried turducken? Uh, no, not yet. Um, I imagine it's better than turkey because it includes things that are better than turkey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Well, so so my parting shot, um, this is something, guys, we, we said we were going to talk about. Um, uh, for all those kids out there who are eager to get to the NBA, life as a NBA superstar ain't all it's cracked up to be. Um, we're all talking about our Thanksgiving. Uh, someone who had a really, really bad Thanksgiving was Jalil Okafor. Um, uh, the, the, the former Duke great, um, 
playing now for the Philadelphia 76ers, as most of you probably have heard, um, had a had a really bad time um, with a game in Boston. He was taunted by some fans. Um, you know, he uh, it was captured on film. He uh, he pushed a guy, pushed him pretty hard, pushed him down. I mean, some people are saying it was a punch. I think it was more of a push than a punch. Um, the news has also come out that Jalil was caught speeding a couple weeks ago. Um, and by speeding, I mean going 108 miles an hour in his car while driving over the Ben Franklin Bridge. I am very familiar with Philadelphia. In fact, my mother-in-law lives just a few blocks from the Ben Franklin Bridge. Um, I can't imagine how you could go 108 miles on the Ben Franklin Bridge and not launch yourself into the Schuylkill River. But um, uh, in any event, that's what uh, Jalil Okafor was doing just a couple weeks ago. And, and again, as I mentioned, he, he got into an altercation in uh, Boston. There's also an allegation that apparently a fan got into a fight with him at a bar in Philadelphia or something like that, and that the, the fan may have pulled a gun on him. Um, all of this is just – oh, and I should mention, by the way, uh, even though there's nothing confirmed, there hasn't been a breathalyzer or anything like that, um, in the video I saw of Jalil in Boston, it, it looked like that was – it looked like he was inebriated. It looked like he was drunk um, or at least, you know, he's a little bit tipsy. Um, Jalil, of course, is – is he 19? Is he is he 20 yet? He might be 20, but Probably he's 20. he's certainly not 21. Old enough to get um, into shooters, but not at old enough to do everything in shooters. There you go. Uh, so anyway, I bring all this up just as a way of saying um, yeah, he's hey, he's making four plus million dollars a year. He's playing great ball for the 76ers. The 76ers suck like nothing ever, and it's not his fault that they suck. Um, they are just wretched, terrible, and I feel terrible for the guy that he he got stuck on this team. Um, uh, you know, it would have been much better. The Lakers, the Lakers were smart. The Lakers would have taken him. Um, by the way, Kobe Bryant retiring. Kobe Bryant announced he's he's all done. Um, but, uh, my parting shot is God, kids don't rush to the NBA. Don't be so sure. I know the money's great and you got to take the money. And I understand that, but my son's a freshman in college right now and he is loving it. He is having such a great time. He's working really hard, but he's also playing really hard. And you you don't even know, you probably don't even know half the fun stuff he's doing. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I, I don't, I don't know why people are so eager to put their college years behind them and become real adults because being a real adult sucks. It doesn't suck. Being a real adult is not as much fun as being a college kid and certainly not as much fun as being a college basketball superstar. Um, look, I'm not saying Jaleel Okafor shouldn't have gone to the NBA. I'm not saying that you know guys who are lock lottery picks shouldn't take the money and run. They should. Um, but they're missing something and they're probably not prepared for the reality of life in the NBA, in the real world. Um, I don't know. That, that's all I got on that. But I, I, I did want to bring it up before we were all done. Yeah, and, and thanks for mentioning it. I mean, we, we obviously were having fun um, with our parting shots before you brought it up. But it is important to note. Uh, and and it, it is sort of a conflicting thing for Duke fans because we want the best for Jolly Okafor. And at the same time, we have to acknowledge that that something went wrong here and that he has to you know, figure out how to correct it and move forward. I did see that he he tweeted out some like a like a four or five tweet apology and, and explanation of himself, uh, you know, basically saying that he needs to take responsibility for his actions and et cetera, et cetera. And, and it looked really good from his part. Um, but the facts remain that he's you know he's gotten in these fights and he's been and he's been uh, speeding and all these all these dangerous things. Um, so I, I hope that he gets it figured out soon. And I hope that 
that Philadelphia 76ers figure out how to have some like leadership in their organization because man, is that a train wreck right now? Yeah. Well, I'll t- right, go ahead, Donald. Go. Yeah. I, I was going to say, I mean, you know, I, let's just say what they are. They're mistakes. He made a couple mistakes. You know, he doesn't want to earn the rep of being a bad kid because, you know, we've seen more often than not that he's a great kid and he comes from a great family and, you know, he, he's capable of, of doing great things. And so, you know, he's made a couple mistakes. He's a young guy. He's going to get over them and hopefully he can just correct them and turn them into positives going forward. I mean, it's, it's a terrible situation that he is in in Philadelphia. I, I don't think, I think I read somewhere that the entire city of Philadelphia has not won this month in, in November. Uh, That's like, correct. Like not a single teams, sport per sports team. Yep. Sport has won in November. So That's it's awesome. not just him. Yeah, it's that's it's awesome. a, that's a ridiculous stat off off as a, off of that. as a DC as a DC native that makes me real, real happy. <laughs> but like you know he he's obviously in a, a situation where he's lost more than he probably has ever in his life combined to this point. So it, I'm sure it's getting to him, but he needs to know that this is the business and and this is kind of you know where he is and to kind of take this and turn it into a positive, whether it's you know focusing in on, on just playing basketball and, and doing what he needs to do uh, on the basketball court and, and not so much of the off, you know, off the court stuff, um, then, you know, I think he'll, he'll learn that over time. But I, I, you know, he's a great kid. So I just think he just made a couple bad mistakes. You know, as, uh, as much as he was a great high school and college basketball player, my bet is Jalil Okafor has lost more games. Like you said, Donald, in the past month, than he did in the previous five years of his entire high school and college career. Uh, And one other thing I want to point out, um, so the Philadelphia 76ers have um, all but announced to the world that they are trying to lose. That's what they've been doing for several years now. Their their rebuilding plan is to suck as badly as they can, get as many draft picks as they can, as many high draft picks as they can, and the way to do that is to lose as many games as they can. Um, And part of that is making sure your roster stinks. You, you don't want to have good players on your roster because good players will win games. Um, you want young players who will develop into good players, but you don't want good experienced players. Um, and and the impact of that we are now seeing with you know someone like Jalil, who's having trouble dealing with the losing and having trouble dealing with the transition to the NBA because there isn't veteran leadership. I mean, you know, uh, think about the difference of what Carl Anthony Towns is going through in Minnesota where he's got Kevin Garnett telling him how it works in the NBA, telling him what the work ethic that's required is, telling him, you know, what it's like on the outside, dealing with the public and the such. And Jaleel Okafor, who has no one. I, I, I mean, I, I, I feel for the guy. Yeah, it's a they, terrible situation. I think I was reading that they haven't had anybody play a minute for them this year over the age of 25, which means that I would be the oldest player on the Sixers if I was like, a foot taller and could shoot. Yeah, it's bad. No bad. Oh, well. Yeah. But it's, uh, you know, uh, 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 by the way, at some point in the next couple of weeks, maybe when Duke's playing some, you know, uh, when, when Duke isn't playing really tough opponents and stuff, we got some time. We need to talk about Duke at the yeah. NBA because uh, Justice Winslow and Rodney Hood and Mason Plumley are playing some really, really good basketball. People aren't necessarily noticing it as much because – um, oh, people uh, you know, Justice Winslow. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah, yeah. Justice Winslow. <laughs> they're, they're, I think they're already talking about Justice Winslow being maybe on the all defensive team as a rookie, which yeah. is just like crazy. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. If, I you guys know really, really good. Um, 
like surprise. Yeah, exactly. Hey, hey, Michael Jordan, picking Frank Kaminsky was a huge mistake. Huge mistake. You didn't think that Michael Jordan could screw up more than picking Kwame Brown. Um, <laughs> and, and, it, he, and it appears that he may have done it. <laughs> yes. He's the best ever at making bad decisions. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, hey, guys, I think with that, we're going to wrap things up here. Um, again, I am Jason Evans. Thanks for joining us here on the DBR podcast, podcast episode number 36. Um, for my friends Sam Klein and Donald Wine, we are wrapping things up. We'll be back here uh, probably next week, we think, hopefully. Um, Donald will officially be a year older at that point. Again, happy birthday, Donald. Thank and, you, man. Yep. And Duke Band, take us home. <laughs>